The Future of Cities is presented by Katerra. Welcome to the Mission Daily. This week, we are previewing our new podcast, The Future of Cities. In season one of The Future of Cities, we dive deep on subjects affecting how our cities are growing and changing. Each episode includes commentary from industry-leading experts, including city planners, technology innovators, government officials, architects, builders, and more. This week on The Mission Daily, we are running the interviews we did for The Future of Cities in their entirety. Today, we share our interview with Ryan Popple. Ryan is the president and CEO of Proterra, a startup that designs and produces electric buses. Ryan explained to us why public transportation might be free in cities of the future and how his company aims to change that. He also shares why some buses are actually worse for the environment than driving. If you like what you are hearing, please subscribe to The Future of Cities on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan, softball question, first one. What's your favorite city? Oh, man, that's a that's a really tough question. Given that we serve 50-some cities right now, I have to be really careful about how I answer that one. I I think probably my favorite city to spend time in, like most people, it's, it's when I'm on vacation, and it would be Park City, Utah. It's a combination of an old mining town, but also a very modern, sustainable skiing and mountain biking community. If I can spend time out there in the summer or the winter, that's that's probably where I am happiest when I'm on a break. But one of the neat things about this job is I've gotten to see more U.S. cities than I even knew existed, probably, and get to know them at a detailed street level. That's really cool. And we'll definitely get into that because I that's really fascinating to me. What do you think makes a great city? I, I think a great city is built around people and is identified by people and culture. So when we think about the cities that we most enjoy spending time in, it is fundamentally a city that has been optimized around the people who live there. And it's a city that enables people to do what they're good at, whether that is food or music or sports or tech. But I I think great cities have very high density in terms of people being able to interact with them. The cities that, that have an energy to them and a positivity they provide, in a lot of ways, safe, clean, often outdoor places for people of a lot of different backgrounds to congregate together. So I think it's our our most walkable cities tend to be the ones that, that we most enjoy, the cities that have as many options as possible in terms of getting around the city so you don't feel kind of stuck in traffic all the time. But, you know, I think all of our great cities globally the, the experience is fundamentally about being in a place with a lot of other people and enjoying the energy of that. What do you think about this idea of mega cities? You know, it, it's been said that, you know, by I think 2025, it's like 70% of the world's population is going to be in these mega cities. What do you think about the future and the importance of thinking about how we look at mega cities now when, you know, the outlook is pretty certain that we're going to get there? I I think it's the most critical human habitat that we need to understand and we need to optimize. In every country around the world, their GDP growth is coming from their cities. Every country around the world has rural areas and they have agriculture, but fundamentally the difference between a developed and a developing economy is the presence of cities and the output of cities. 
If you look at the United States, it's no different here. It's no different in Europe. Our economic engines, our innovation engines, our power to change things, to provide education, it always happens in cities. So I, I think that means that to what you said or what you mentioned, cities are the future of where human beings are going to live. I, I think it's it may be a romanticized, but it's a naive idea to think that somehow we're going to go back to a highly rural existence. People can do that by choice, but they don't do it by economic necessity. So when you look at people in India or China, there's no one there who's trying to get back to the farm. They're typically leaving rural areas and they're going into urban areas. From an environmental perspective, if we can figure out how cities work from an environmentally sustainable perspective, we're going to be in very good shape in terms of being able to cohabitate with the other species on this planet as opposed to take them all down with us. The good news is cities are already our most energy efficient places for human beings to live. So we tend to use less land, less water, less pesticide, less oil per resident if we're living in an urban area. But we certainly can do a lot better in all of our cities in terms of kind of cleaning up the way we do business. But if we if we figure it out, if we crack the code on the city being the sustainable place for human beings to thrive, our impact on the planet will be um, significantly lower than it is today. Let's talk a little bit about Proterra and what you're building. You know, you've been CEO since 2014. How's the company grown and changed the last four years? And what are the types of things that you're working on looking forward? You know, I think that the biggest difference about our strategy over the last four years as compared to prior to that, the company I, I inherited in 2014 had a smart strategy around building a business around the niche that was electric vehicles within mass transit. And I think we've gained the confidence over the last couple of years to reset that strategy and focus on building the best mass transit vehicle company, regardless of the category of the powertrain. So we've, we've concluded that there, there really isn't any reason why internal combustion engines would remain in mass transit or urban vehicle service. And so we've really focused our investment and our product development in on making sure the product can be a one-for-one -one replacement for diesel buses or hybrid or natural gas buses and can do 100% of the fleet. And that's been a, a, a powerful change for us in terms of how we think about the product, how we think about cost structure, infrastructure, as well as just our own competitive advantage that we need to drive into the market. The idea that the goal of the company is not to build the most profitable electric bus manufacturer. The goal of the company is to eliminate diesel buses. Let's talk about the problem with diesel buses. I, I think that it's something where it's been around, it's been part of the fabric of society. I mean, buses have been, right? Mm -hmm. For a long time. And the idea that, you know, taking the bus was the thing that came and picked you up. And whether it was the school bus or whether it was, you know, the city bus or whatever it is, that of course it's been diesel for so long. What are the changes like in the bus that like what what really makes that problem such a big deal when it is diesel across like the entire landscape of the United States? Yeah, I think that the primary problem is cost. And we need to radically reduce the cost of moving people in urban areas. As you stated earlier, we have a billion people headed to urban areas. We have areas the size of Chicago that will be built in a single month globally in terms of urbanization. So urban mobility 
every year that goes by matters more and more. Congestion gets worse. It doesn't really matter where you are in the world or where you are in the United States. Traffic is no longer kind of a Los Angeles County problem. Traffic is Charlotte, North Carolina. It's Atlanta, Georgia. It's Boston, Massachusetts. And it's certainly every major city in the developing world. So we know we need a lot of high-density, hyper-efficient mass transit. It's not the only thing we need. We're going to need all of the above with the exception of more single occupancy cars. So I think we are moving into a world where almost everything that we can do to move people in a city is going to become more important. But for mass transit, you've got to radically reduce the cost per mile. You have to do that in all forms of transit or in all forms of transport. But in mass transit being the backbone of the city's infrastructure, it really is the most important place to start to have a healthy transport system. The problem with a diesel bus is unless you completely fill the diesel bus with people, it, it really isn't much of an environmental or cost benefit to move people in a bus versus a car. A diesel bus only gets four miles to the gallon. So if one person is riding on the bus or even a handful of people, you'd be better off from an energy cost per mile moving them in smaller vehicles. And, and the reason is that the internal combustion engine, you optimize it for the peak energy requirement or the peak horsepower requirement. So you're dragging around these very large diesel engines that are big enough to move a truck full of cargo, but they're massively underutilized when they're driving between routes or when there are only a few people in the bus. The electric vehicle changes that because an electric motor is extremely efficient across a really wide band of RPM and torque. So you can precisely use the amount of energy you need. What, what that gives you initially is just a radical change in energy consumption per mile on the order of 80% less energy per mile. So you could, you could take that benefit and provide five times as much transit for the same amount of fuel that you're spending on diesel. That is remarkable. So diesel buses get four miles a gallon? Four miles the gallon on a that good is, day. That is horrible. Horrible. It's horrible. Yeah, it's a. I mean, it's such a low number that it, it, you can convert it really easily to gallons per mile. So a diesel bus burns a quarter gallon of fuel every mile. If you think about how much soot and carbon and particulate matter comes off of burning diesel fuel, you know, imagine if you if you took a quarter gallon of diesel and you just threw it and you lit it on fire and how much smoke and pollution you'd get. That's what you produce per bus every mile. And then you scale that up and you think, you know, London has 10 or 20,000 buses. New York City has 6,000. So New York City has the air quality equivalent of firing up 6,000 diesel gensets in the city and running them at four miles the gallon. And we wonder why air quality is pretty bad in cities. That is absolutely remarkable. I mean, it's, but I, it's, I think it's one of those things like I've never really heard it explained that way. So of course, you know, it's, it sounds a lot worse when you just get told it. But I think it's something that I think we see a lot in marketing to us on the television, constantly about the importance of green and the importance of this. But I think what's a really important distinction that you talked about is that this as a mass transit option is something that is the backbone of a city. People choosing to you know, have a car that gets eight miles to the gallon is one thing. You're not running 6,000 of those as the backbone for your 
mobility. And running them all day long. I mean, if, if you lived in a neighborhood where your neighbor had a perpetual construction project going on and they fired up a gen set at six in the morning and it ran till midnight or ran till 2 a.m. I mean, and, and that's the utilization factor on buses that makes it a much more important problem to solve than personal cars. So our, our personal choices in terms of the cars we drive, we'll typically drive those cars if you're a commuter 10 to 12,000 miles a year. We have individual customers who operate each bus 60,000 miles a year. So when you scale it up to the requirement of fuel that you, that you burn in a city, it's 10,000 gallons to 20,000 gallons of fuel per vehicle per year. And it is infrastructure. So you as a consumer, you really don't have a way of changing what a city's doing. So if a city had a way of providing a service and it is a really dirty form of fuel, you're stuck with it. And that's, that's kind of where we've been for the last 100 years with mass transit technology. We've actually moved faster on rail in terms of electrifying rail than we have on uh, wheeled vehicles or rubber wheeled vehicles. Just thinking about that, I mean, the other thing is that we're paying for it. Like mm -hmm. the taxpayers are paying for this anyways. That's so right. we are choosing, like we're paying for something that is making our air quality significantly worse and is actually less efficient. I mean, in, in terms of monetarily, it actually loses us money at a higher clip. Kind of exclaim or explain how that works. Yeah. So when a, when a bus is deployed, whether you know it or not, as the taxpayer, you just signed up for a 12-year fuel bill. Now, that bus is going to need roughly 10,000 gallons of fuel a year. And a city is not going to buy a bus and then have to park it because of high fuel costs. They're going to change the budget for transit, or they're going to appropriate more funding, or they're going to put a ballot measure out. But point being, from a financial perspective, every bus is a 120,000-gallon short position on the oil markets. So you look at the oil markets right now, and you, you can't hedge that risk. So it would be, a if, if, you, if you are going to buy a diesel bus and you are upfront with taxpayers about what you are going to do to them from an off-balance sheet liability perspective, you'd say, we have to be hedged against 120,000 gallons of diesel fuel for every bus in the fleet. You can't hedge it, though. No one will sell you a contract that guarantees the price of oil 10 years from now because no one has any way to manage that risk. So if you run scenarios and you look at the, the oil markets right now and you have analysts who say oil's going to $50, you have analysts who say oil's going to $150, no one knows. So it is an unplannable city liability. It's one of the reasons why companies like FedEx and UPS and DHL, they are very supportive of electrification technology because they understand their businesses stop working at $150 crude oil and they got very, very close to seeing that point in the summer of 2008. But yeah, from a taxpayer perspective, it, it can be pretty frustrating when you, you are taxed and the revenue that you provide to your local government is going to make your environment worse. And equally as important, it's going to make your transit system financially unsustainable. You listen to that and you think, well, why would anyone do this? The reality is with new technology it really takes a tremendous effort to educate a market and to get an industrial market in particular to do anything different than what they have always done. These markets, regardless of whether you're trying to create innovation in transport or in the grid or in water, if you're trying to change things in a city, 
you got to have a pretty thick skin and you've got to have a sustained focus on a long-term objective. You will get the door slammed in your face a lot of times early on because for the most part, industrial customers don't like to change. It's a really fascinating insight about the future of oil and being dependent on that. That if you're buying a bus today that's a diesel bus, you need to rely on the future oil for the next decade and how poor of an investment. <laughs> and and I, I, poor of an investment meaning it's an uncertain investment. And if anything, our cities should have certain investments right. that they know are scalable, they know are sustainable, and they know that cannot fluctuate wildly in order to bankrupt a city or divert funds from other things that are needed. What's also really fascinating to me is this is one of those problems that actually means no difference to the person on the bus, right? Other than, I mean, like air quality, all that stuff. Yeah. But I'm talking about from getting to A to B, there is no difference. You are getting from A to B whether or not this bus is viewing out chemicals or whether it is sustainable, right? So you're getting there just as fast or potentially faster. We'll get into that later. But this is a change that to the actual consumer is a net win, 100% of the time. There's no reason to be on the alternative, right? I mean, like, what is the reason to be on the alternative for the for the consumer of that? This job is the first, first role I've ever had where I've realized no product is ever going to have 100% market share. And bad products tend not to have 0% market share. We got to the point with the electric bus where the total cost of ownership was so much better than diesel that the internal rate of return for a city was anywhere between 10 and 20%, which is much higher than their cost to capital. You know, cities, they're either appropriated funding or they can bond, and they can bond in low single-digit percentage points. So sometimes we'll talk with our board or we'll talk with the investment firms that own Proterra, and you can, you can see the gears turning, and they'll say, well, okay, why wouldn't a large city just bond or, or borrow at 1% or 2%, get rid of all of their diesel buses and immediately start saving millions of dollars of fuel per year on diesel, eliminate diesel particulate matter. And it, it really gets into the inertia of markets. I understand now how important it is to effectively market new technology. And you can have a spreadsheet that works. You can do a demo that works. But that's not going to cause change in a complex system like a city. And, and part of the reason is everyone you're interacting with has 10 problems they're trying to solve that day. Most people who are running transit systems in cities, it is not an easy job. You know, there's a bus that's broken down somewhere or there's a new law affecting the way you have to configure the vehicles. You might have a driver's strike going on or something like that, or you may have a conflict with, with your maintenance team. So when you're talking to people, it's easy when you're marketing a new technology to assume that everyone else's number one priority is also your number one priority. I mean, to us, the most important thing we work on every day is eliminating diesel in urban transit. To our customers, we have to make sure that we really explain how much value this can create because they're getting pressure from all sides as to what the most important thing is that they're doing. I do, I do agree with your, your point, though, in that this is not a sustainability technology that's the equivalent of reluctantly eating your vegetables because your doctor told you to. Like, you can still eat your steak or your hamburger. You're, you're getting to work. It's a bus. 
The buses, the electric buses have gotten to the point where they can do routes that diesel buses can't do. So the technology is actually starting to surpass. You lower the ambient noise level in cities. So there's a lot to love about it. But it's going to take a concerted effort from government leaders, from public sector, fleet managers, from companies like Proterra, from the utilities. It'll take the next 10 years and it's not going to solve itself. It's a really good idea. It makes a lot of financial and environmental sense. But if people don't care about it, it won't happen. What are the downsides? Like, is, is there a downside of the amount of electricity it uses? Are there downsides in, you know, switching costs? I mean, are there, like, what are what are the perceived downsides of switching? I mean, one of the things that we talked about with Jed Halber from the city of Detroit was the idea that where buses go and the fixed routes of buses is one of the things that's super fascinating because like you said, a bus isn't always the best Mm -hmm. vehicle for the job. There's a lot of times where a car is more efficient, especially on the outskirts of town. It's way more efficient to have a, have a car. I mean, talk to me about some of the potential like downsides of this technology and using electric buses. Yeah. I mean, the, our vision for electric buses is that they will become effectively like the moving sidewalk at the train station or the airport. You don't have to pay money to get on the moving sidewalk. You don't get to tell the moving sidewalk where it goes. And you locate the moving sidewalk on the place where there's a very high probability that everyone is going the same place at the same time. It would be a really inefficient system at an airport that instead of having electric light rail or a moving sidewalk, everyone got into an Uber and took that Uber a half mile. Yep. So I think large vehicle mass transit, and I would include rail in that as well, those are really good arteries for a city. And there are a lot of routes that because of human biology, we tend to wake up at the same time in the morning. We tend to go to sleep at the same time at night. We tend to live in certain places, work in certain places. So you can develop that heat map and you can see If you're going to have kind of a crushed load of people going into downtown Tokyo every morning and then leaving every afternoon, you probably want to solve 80% of that problem with a high-capacity vehicle. And the more people you have going the same place, the more likely it's going to be rail. I think we're one of the few companies in kind of the city landscape that's really comfortable with the fact that we are one tool in the drawer but we're not trying to convince cities that we're the only tool they need. If you are a city of more than a million people and you have limited geography in terms of water and mountains and you got a lot of people going the same place at the same time, we love the idea of something like Caltrain or the subway. And then buses are, I would say, kind of the medium duty solution. But then kind of last meter stuff, Things like bird and things like jump, walking, bike lanes, like that's the best way to move people that last little bit. You don't want to move somebody in a 30,000-pound bus. Now, in terms of downsides for the electric bus, what we have run into in terms of deployment challenges, training is a big issue. We can't assume that just because someone knows how to drive a diesel bus, they can drive an electric bus. That sounds somewhat counterintuitive in that electric vehicles are very simple, But the way people drive diesel buses, especially after a career of driving them, they're not thinking about things like regenerating power during deceleration. They tend to slam on the accelerator to generate enough torque to get the bus moving, and then they tend to stomp on the brakes to slow the bus down. The way you drive an electric vehicle, whether it's a car or a bus, you tend to use the accelerator pedal 
almost like a rheostat, like you're applying power and you're taking power out. We've seen as much as 20% variation in terms of energy usage per mile if we don't do a good driver training program. Same thing could be applied to mechanics. The electric bus is a lot easier to maintain, but you still have to do a training program. You open up the back of an electric bus and it's really simple and clean, but it's still a completely foreign environment if you've spent the last 20 to 30 years turning wrenches on a large diesel engine. And then the last thing I'd say is we've learned a lot of tough but good lessons about infrastructure. Deploying electric buses in Washington, D.C. or in New York City, we dug into electrical infrastructure that seemed like it. no one had really paid attention to it since the invention of the light bulb. As you go into the older, larger, more established cities, the idea that you can just plug in incremental load anywhere you want in the city is not the case. So we've learned to engage with the utility very early, find the places where you have a lot of low-cost power in a city, and be ready to make upgrades to things like distribution, not necessarily transmission or generation, there's plenty of electricity, but can you get enough electricity to this building? When we moved into this building in Burlingame, California, the transformer that powered this building was a bucket transformer on a wooden pole, and it looked like it had been there since 1950. And we probably had, had. Yeah, I mean, we had to upgrade that with, a, I think it was like a three megawatt pad transformer. Not the end of the world, but you, you got to think about this stuff beyond just the, the vehicle itself. I mean, and those are the things that, and not to, not to trivialize that, but those are the things that in 15 years you've figured out, right? Like yeah. the, those, the, all of those, all of the things that nobody sees, right? The 80% of things that you're doing at Proterra that, that the consumer is never going to see are all the things that are the hard parts of business, but not necessarily the hard parts of what this will look like in the future, right? Like when those type of things are solved and that infrastructure is, is updated or upgraded, when there's correct training, I mean, and that's kind of what, you know, 15 years into the future, 50 years into the future, whatever you want to look at, what does this at scale look like? And how does that interplay between one city to the next? You have metropolitan areas. How does that weave in? And I, I really... I love what you were talking about with there is not one solution. And ultimately, what we're seeing now is this idea that essentially we had no competition happening in transportation for 100 years. Mm -hmm. Once we left, once we went from horse to car, it was cars and then public transit and whatever you were implementing for that. And those public transits got launched and then they got repaired or they kind of kept going, but that was kind of it. And now you have all of these different solutions working in concert with each other where each one makes the other ones better because they provide different services. You know, and I, I know you don't know what the future looks like for Proterra, but what could you say that the economies of scale of having these in, I mean, you're in 50 cities now, is that correct? We're deployed in over two dozen. We have uh, projects that are contracted with over 50. So yeah, within two years, I think you'll you'll have Proterra buses in close to 50 cities. So yeah, what does the future of that look like when you have enough buses, enough training, enough infrastructure, enough support? I mean, what does that kind of look like? Yeah, I mean, it's th- this is what makes the job a lot of fun. I, I'm glad we're working on cities now and not 20 or 30 years ago. The U.S. really abandoned its cities during kind of the post-civil rights era. And in a lot of regions in the United States, we've deliberately kneecapped our public transit infrastructure for political reasons, but not for economic ones. 
What has happened, though, is every city throughout the country is starting to wake up to the, to the reality that they need to compete for talent. And the talent they specifically need is demanding that they live in a city that's an interesting place to live. This up-and-coming generation of uh, millennials, and I think there's even a generation now after millennials. That I think it's Gen X or Gen Z. or no, I don't even it's know. something I like that. Be, yeah, yeah. I, I am, um, I'm Gen X, so like no oh, yeah. one writes about my generation anymore. But if you look at the polling information on the millennials in particular, which is the largest generation since the baby boomers, that's a, that's a powerful fact because in a lot of ways, politically, this country has been beholden to the baby boomer generation as they have moved through society. So very large, very powerful demographic that's finally being countered by millennials. Well, millennials are very different in terms of where they want to live and where they want to work and what they want to do in their free time. They don't necessarily want a Ford Mustang in their driveway that they're turning wrenches on on the weekends. That's, I think you're hard pressed to find a teenager who's really interested in that type of relationship with an automobile. I don't think they aspire to go to college and then move out to the burbs and have a two-car garage and two and a half kids and a dog. You're seeing that the most competitive companies are locating their campuses in urban areas, not in suburban areas. And they are those corporations are now pushing mayors to improve their cities. So I think the, sort of the flight we had out of the urban core when we overinvested in the highway system and we really built the country based on suburbs, we've now concluded that it doesn't work. The millennials have concluded that they don't want it. So you're actually seeing real estate values going up in cities and dropping in the exurbs. So cities, cities are where it's at. Now, in terms of what's going to happen in those cities, I think one of the biggest changes we'll see that people aren't ready for is the fact that moving people within the urban core is going to get to the point where it has zero marginal cost, going back to kind of that moving sidewalk analogy. And I liken it to how we used to pay for mobile phone service. I'm old enough to remember nights and weekends. Yep. You know, and you'd, you'd talk to your friend or your girlfriend and you'd be like, I'll call you back in a little bit because I'm on any time minutes right now. Or, you know, I'm about to roll over. Call you at 1201. Right, exactly. Or on the weekend, you could talk as much as you want. And now the idea of that just seems crazy. And, and, and the reason that those pricing models went away is the cost of delivering voice data dropped to the point where companies could outcompete each other. And finally, one company said, you know what? Pay me a flat fee per month and all you can eat. The cost of movement in a city keeps going down. You wouldn't know that if you looked at internal combustion engine systems, but if you look at electric, the cost of electric mobility is going down every year. So the vehicles are getting cheaper, the batteries are getting cheaper, and the other thing that's going on is electricity is getting cheaper. The competition that sort of the kilowatt is under is incredibly intense. You know, offshore wind is bidding at seven cents a kilowatt hour. What has largely killed coal is not policy. It's having to compete with natural gas, wind, and solar. So you can see this sort of convergence of factors coming together, and we're already looking at cost per mile that's going to be less than a penny in terms of variable basis. So you'll start seeing things like, I, I think services like Uber and Lyft and even mass transit. Mass transit in the urban core in some cities has already moved to a free model. You just get on the vehicle. A lot of cities have realized that the congestion relief is more valuable than the incremental cost of collecting a fare. And if the cost of energy on an electric bus is a penny per passenger per mile, you're really going to have a fare box that takes pennies. It just doesn't make sense. So I think 
the cost of mobility in cities, in the, in the downtown urban core, is going to be free. You'll be able to pay for premium services, but if you are willing to wait a few minutes, I also think bus schedules are going to go away. I think that as, as mobility gets cheaper, you'll just run it on a frequency of service basis. You'll go to a sign, and the sign will have a little digital ticker, and it'll say next vehicle in four minutes. If you're really impatient or you want to be by yourself, you'll hail a ride and a fancy car will pick you up. Might have a driver, might not. Then the other thing that's going to go on that's really exciting is you're going to see a synergy between transportation and electricity. So we're seeing this in markets like school buses. School buses are going to electrify, but a school bus only moves for a couple hours a day. The rest of the time, it's going to be a grid storage asset. So a lot of these discussions about how we're going to integrate renewables, we're actually going to use electric vehicles to do it. And then I think the last thing that's going to happen is cities in particular, electricity is going to become the common currency. It's what the IT companies run on. It's what you need for your phone. LED lighting runs on electricity. Transport's going to run on electricity. We're starting to see solutions like heat pumps and much smarter heating and cooling technology. But I think we're going to rip a lot of legacy fossil fuel infrastructure out of cities that causes us huge problems. Like there's not a day that goes by where a natural gas line somewhere doesn't get cracked and cause a problem. I don't know if it's 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, but we're going to end up with digital cities. And I think the idea that you'd pump flammable fuel into a city is going to, we're going to look at it and it'll be as much of an an anachronism as like street lamps that ran on whale oil. Yep. I mean, that, that is such a critical insight. It's like the, the things that are common sense in the future, like what do you look at? What do your kids ask you questions about that make no sense? It's like, why would you put something that is super flammable? I mean, like think about the movie industry, right? Like we're going to look back at movies 50 years from now and be like, why did everything explode? <laughs> right. Like, yeah, it was full of explosives. Right, right. You're, how are you going to make an action movie with electric vehicles? Like yeah, there's right? just, you don't have the finale. You know, a, a that's, great, an unintended, that's an unintended consequence, and that is that is really funny. Well, a great example of this, if you live in California, your utility probably ships you, or they're supposed to ship you, this special red wrench. And you're supposed to put it somewhere that you can remember, because during an earthquake, one of the things you're supposed to do to survive is go out and use the red wrench to turn off your natural gas feed. Now you think about that, and when we when we think about the problems of adopting new technology, yeah, new technology is a little bit hard, but like if we sold a product and we provided it with a don't blow yourself up wrench, and we're like, look, in, in the event of an earthquake, run out and shut off the source of energy going into your home or your vehicle, otherwise it's going to explode, people would say like, you know, no thanks, I, I, I think I'd rather not buy this product. We don't even have a choice. You don't have a choice. Right. You buy a home, you move in in an earthquake-prone area in California, and this wrench shows up in the mail. <laughs> You're like, so we're, we're incredibly comfortable with doing really suboptimal stuff because it's the way things are done. But it's not the way they have to be done. It's just the way they currently are done. I think the idea of companies like Proterra that are essentially saying – what used to be cost you money will in the future be free is just such an a liberating idea of like, hey, you know the thing that used to the, the thing that kills me, absolutely kills me, is when the bridge toll goes up. And I'm like, who's going on the bridge? The people who are going to work. It's right. like, so you're taxing them again for going to work, 
right? That, like those sort of ideas. And the reason why is because like, for lack of a better term, it's an easy way to make money. It's, yeah. It like, I, I forget the actual stat, but I think the Golden Gate Bridge, which was built, I think in 1933, somewhere in there, was actually supposed to, the the toll was supposed to end, I think in like 1939. Like or it was something. gonna be paid off by 1939. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, you know, closing in on 80 years later or whatever, we're, we're still paying these tolls. But the idea is like that sort of stuff is counterproductive to our society. It is 100% counterproductive that people who are going to work are negatively incentivized to move around the city in which to work. Like for us, we do at the mission, we do tons of interviews. We go in person to a lot of different places. It is literally charging us to do all of these things. Now, like you said, there there should be an option that is, you know, the white glove option, you know, where you can opt into getting in a private car or whatever it is. And those type of things are popping up right and left. There's a fun option. You can get on a, a motorized scooter and fly around town and it's, you know, you can hit wheelies or do whatever you want to do. Like those type of things I think are great, but we just have to get away as a, as a society of like taxing our, our citizens even more to do things that are better for all of us. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally mobility within a city, it's basically the liquidity within a city. So if you have a small business, if you're running a record store or a restaurant, you want a highly mobile city. You do not want someone to wake up on a Saturday morning and say, gas costs too much, or renting a car costs too much, or transit costs too much, or traffic's too bad, and I'm not going to go meet my friend at that record store. But you know, the, the neatest thing, I, I think the most liberating feeling about being in a city is when you can be in a city without a car, and you're in an area of a city where it, there's enough to do that you can just move from point to point go where you want to go, and you're just not stressed out about finding a parking space or your car getting messed up. But I, I completely agree with you in terms of we need to seek solutions that really enhance economic productivity. There's all sorts of conversations about growth and manufacturing and the economy, but it's a pretty simple concept. Like if we want to improve standard of living, we have to go after economic productivity. So if it costs us $10 to move a box of cargo across the city, if we can figure out how to do that for $8, then we've made life better for everyone. And people can choose how they use that benefit. But we should be going after solutions that radically reduce the cost and the environmental consequence of, of providing goods and services. And the other piece of that that we've talked about a few times in other interviews for the future cities, but is this idea that if I can get home, if commute used to take me an hour, now it takes it takes me 30 minutes. That's 30 minutes that I have to spend with my kids. Yeah. Like those things make life like the only non-renewable resource, right? Is time. Like yep. that's the thing we, we all get one shot at and that's it. And it's like to reduce the amount of time that things cost to reduce the amount of time that it takes to get from Atlanta to DC or all of these things. It is a critical thing for our site increases productivity, quality of life, all these things. And how we get around is the number one cause of that. It is the number one problem that we're facing and like, tr and not to mention the amount of like deaths that are on the road and all those other things. So we just did a nice walkthrough of the entire factory here at Proterra in Burlingame, California, as you mentioned. Really amazing to see all of the batteries, to see the bus, to see everything. But we were talking about this idea that one of these buses, what it actually does, how it actually recharges is really revolutionary. Walk through kind of, I guess, just a little bit of how it's built, how it's structured, how it's maintained, and how it's charged so that it can be used essentially nonstop in a way that is much more sustainable. 
Yeah. So in, in some ways, I think we make electric buses look easier than they are. We want to ensure that our customers have as smooth of an experience as possible implementing electric bus technology. So we don't we don't overcomplicate the amount of innovation that we describe being in the product. As best as possible, we try to market the product as being very similar to the bus you're operating today, but just much more efficient and cheaper to operate per mile. But the enabling technologies that have allowed us to do this, it started with a bus body that's 4,000 pounds lighter than a steel bus. So our buses are made out of the same type of composites as wind turbine blades or some of the more advanced passenger airliners now. Boeing has done a tremendous amount with carbon fiber to lightweight planes, and that's led to a lot of advancements on the transport side or on the ground transport side. So from a chassis perspective, the bus is not the same as a stick-built steel bus. And we've taken the mass of a light-duty vehicle, a car, out of the product before we even start on batteries or drive lines. So there was Proterra, in a lot of ways, is a lightweight materials company hidden within a a bus company. We also had to work on a drive line that could provide enough torque to move a bus up very steep grades. We just did a demo in San Francisco where I think we went up a 23% grade, which if you're a skier or a cyclist, like that's a, that's a significant grade to go up in a bus. So we had, to, we had to build a very powerful drive line, much more powerful than you'd have in a car, but it also needed to be hyper-efficient. And then the, the bulk of our R&D has gone into energy storage. And so we walked through the battery factory today where we build modules and packs, load the software into them. And the batteries we've developed are as energy dense as the types of batteries that would be in a Chevy Bolt or a Tesla, but they're designed to be safe in an infrastructure grade environment. So, so very ruggedized solutions. All that comes together in a vehicle that on a typical drive is getting better efficiency than a pickup truck or SUV sitting next to it. So these buses can get 20 mile per gallon energy equivalent, and they're carrying 10,000 pounds of people in an urban setting. So a, a remarkable step change in energy efficiency. And then on the charging side, we offer a variety of ways to charge the vehicles. The most conventional one is just plug it in overnight and drive it all day. But some of the really interesting advancements have been around distributed charging, and we were looking at some of those systems earlier. And we've borrowed some technology from the rail industry where they recharge electric light rail train cars. And we're starting to deploy that in the bus industry so that a bus, as it pulls into a bus stop, can basically be contacted by an automated charging arm, just like an electric rail car, and you can fully recharge a vehicle in a relatively short period of time, conceptually keep a vehicle on a route 24 hours a day, seven days a week. As you move into a world where self-driving vehicles are more prevalent, if you have self-driving vehicles and they're self-recharging vehicles, parking lots no longer really make sense. You'd have a very small footprint for occasionally pulling vehicles out of service for preventative maintenance and repairs, but you wouldn't pull vehicles into a parking lot and have them sleep overnight. You just keep them on the route. So some of the things that we're unlocking with electric vehicle technology are going to enable us to do things with vehicles that just weren't possible with fossil fuel vehicles. And it's just really remarkable to see it in person because imagine like a magnet can come down, a big magnet about the size of two human beings, but and it comes down and it touches the top of the bus and then, you know, three minutes later, it's charged enough that 
over time, you know, if you do that, how many times a day? 20 times a day? Yeah, some of our customers will do sort of burst charging 10 to 20 times a day. And the, the state of charge, the battery pack never drops below 60%. So essentially, it can move around all day off of these burst charges. And in the time that it's stopping to let people on and off the bus, it's charging. I mean, like that stuff is, it's really revolutionary. And it kind of, it's exponential thinking because it is now, I mean, you're talking about these charges are 10 times longer than traditional charges have been. The technology is getting better and better and it will continue to get better so that, you know, these kind of, you know, I mean, how long ago was it that the only way to charge this was you plug it into the wall and you wait overnight? I mean, how much, what's the technological change there over the years? I I think just in the last five years, commercialized charging has gone from probably 50 kilowatts to 500. So a 10x improvement in commercialized charge power. I, I think we're we're looking at a change in how logistics will work. And and it's gonna happen on the car side, it'll happen on the truck side as well. You know, I, I've been driving electric cars. I started with an, a Nissan Leaf back in probably 2009 or eight. But that was my first experience in life without gas stations. And a, a gas station is a huge waste of time. Yeah. So it's Friday. I've got three kids. I'm happily married. When I'm done working today, I want to go home. <laughs> like I don't want to pull into a gas station. I especially don't want to pull into a gas station and wait behind other people at the gas station. It's economic waste. If you're a truck fleet and you've got to pull a truck off route and have a human being put a nozzle into the side of the truck and then stand there for 20 minutes and possibly spill fuel on the ground, it's just a really wasteful process. And so we're, we're going to be able to revisit the way workflows occur. And there are whole steps in the value chain of transportation that can probably go away. I'm not aware of any Proterra customer having to refurbish the brakes on their vehicles yet. So wow. like that whole maintenance step is gone. And it's because the what do brakes do? They slow down a vehicle. Or said another way, they help you dump energy that you just generated with an engine. So like you create power and then you bleed off the power. Whereas an electric vehicle creates movement and it turns that movement back into energy. So there, there's a lot of this stuff won't happen overnight. But, but to your point, if you look at the pace of change that's already occurred, and we're only in probably the second inning of this industry, I don't see how internal combustion engines are going to survive as um, some of these more digital systems mature. That was pretty mind-blowing brakes essentially are just ruining the fuel that you were just burning, right? It's like the the most wasteful thing that you can do is brake. Therefore, we should just eliminate that altogether. And it's like, and the next step of that obviously is driverless cars. And, And you just think about how much less waste there is there too. Like every step in this chain, every technological advancement leads us to a point where Things are running at all times. You're going to get everywhere you, you're going faster. We're going to use less energy. It's going to be more efficient. And people generally are going to see the results of that in an exponential way that they never had to do. And the idea that you give up some freedom of, of mobility or, oh, I can't just walk into my garage and fire up my car and get where I'm going to go is nonsense because it's going to be more efficient. And you can still have a car in your garage if you want to. I mean, like, yeah. 
there's no, there's nothing preventing people from doing that. The, you know, the best analogy I heard about that was from the CEO of ChargePoint, Pat Romano. And he was asked about, well, aren't people going to like want the freedom of driving their own car? And he said, yeah, of course. But, you know, it'll be similar to how people still enjoy the freedom of riding their own horse. There's no law that says you, you can't ride a horse in a town, you know, or, but a hundred years ago, if you, if you had said to people that mobility, maybe 150 years ago, if you said mobility is going to be defined by machines, not horses, they would have said, you are crazy. Are people really going to want to give up their horse? And if you really want to drive a car, you can certainly do that. I, I definitely believe in markets and segments. There's going to be somebody who wants to take an electric helicopter to the Hamptons for the weekend. Most of us are going to have to take the train or the bus to the airport to catch our flight. But like that's that's how markets work. And that's why I, I don't believe in the one-size-fits-all model. But I do believe we should really be focused on making the forms of transport that everyone is likely to need the priority. I love it. Gosh, this has just been great. Let's do lightning round real quick and let okay. you get out of here. You're a busy man. What app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? Right now, I'm using an app called Battlescribe that helps my son and I create little armies for tabletop war, war game and have yes. the same number of points. The other app I use a lot is Garmin Connect. And I just find it a lot of fun to see like a route that I hiked or biked or walked my dog kind of superimposed back on kind of a Google Maps-like image. Yeah, It's just neat to be able to look back at, at some of the places you've gone and then see from a top-down view what that route really was. That's cool. There's been a, a theme of a lot of the guests on the show. A lot of, a lot of people love maps. <laughs> a lot of people who love cities love maps. Favorite time-saving tool? Favorite time-saving tool is the charge point chargers we have in our parking lot because I can charge here. And when I'm done or when I'm finished today, I can just go home. And then when I get home, I can plug my car in into the garage, just like I plug in my phone and I don't have to go out of my way. And like, if I got to pick up a gallon of milk on the way home, I'll get a text about that. But I don't always have to go to a gas station. Favorite team, sports or otherwise? Probably the Warriors. Go and, Cubs. All right. You know, partly because of they're an amazing team, but they, they just their approach and the positivity of the team, yep. I think, is a really neat example. And especially if you have young children, you really appreciate when you have local champions who tend to be good guys as well. Totally agree. Favorite podcast? Right now, I'm listening to Business Wars. Wonderly produced it. And I'm on the first season right now, which is Netflix versus Blockbuster. And it's really helped me think about how do I make diesel buses the blockbuster of transportation. That's great. Favorite recent book? I listened to a book called The German War, which was a historian found a set of letters from 12 families during World War II and tried to explain the experience of World War II from the perspective of uh, regular German families who were kind of caught up in it and had sons and fathers that were conscripted. And it was, it was a really eye-opening read or listen, I guess, in terms of kind of understanding what it would have been like to be inside of something you didn't agree with. We did a great, this is... I always hijack the lightning round, but we did a great story on Gert Boyle, the chairman of Columbia and the former CEO of Columbia, where her family had was like a pretty like influential family in Germany and had to like leave it all behind, pack up some suitcases and go. And they ended up building Columbia. It's this crazy, crazy story. But yeah, it was the same sort of thing. It was just like right before the war and they were just like, we're going to leave our family's fortune, all of our stuff and just, we got to go. Yeah, the, the, I, I think one of the most moving parts about that book, they have a letter that came out of the archives from 
a young man who was serving on the Eastern Front and was writing his father who had served in World War I. And his father kind of talks down to him about, you know, just buck up. It's not, it's not so bad. Sometimes bad things happen in war. And this kid who's probably late teens, early 20s writes back and has the clarity to say, this is not what you remember from France. And it's really important that you make up your mind on like how you come out on this because history is gonna judge us. And that was like a 21 year old or 19 year old. It's it's a really neat book. I think it was triggered by a historian finding a batch of letters that they didn't know existed. But this, I mean, that's actually a great comparison to some of the things that we see with the future of cities of like, we're going to be judged on this stuff, whether you like it or not. Like the book is being written right now and we are all the authors, (laughs) you know, like we are, I mean, we talk about that a lot at the mission when you look at people's stories and the folks who like later on in life get caught, it's like they didn't get caught the whole time, their entire life, they're writing that book. And you know, it's not over till it's over. And like every, every little bit counts. I think we're going to look back at some of the decisions that we made about cities. And like we talked with the city of Detroit with Jed, we were talking about that. He was like, they made some horrible decisions that were, you know, based off of some policies that were like borderline racist and other sort of things that, yeah. And not just that city, but like you discussed earlier, like lots of cities in America that pushed out into different areas that we look back at that stuff. And there were some huge mistakes that were made. Richmond, Virginia had to appoint a kind of citizens committee to replan sort of streets and transit after they basically ended up at a complete loss of trust with the community because there were so many suspicions about almost racial gerrymandering in terms of keeping neighborhoods separate. And it was a long legacy. I mean, you know, a lot of this stuff happened decades ago, but they, in order to restore trust with the community and show that that wasn't going to happen again, they kind of blew out the old board and appointed a layman's group that included people from faith groups and educators. and But yeah, that, that, that stuff, there, there's a lot of work to do to fix things that in some cases there are legacy problems that are 50 years old. Unfortunately, in some cases, they're only five or 10 years old. There was a great quote I heard, the CEO of ABB, which I think is a big Swiss electrical company, but he described why he was excited to work on smart cities and clean cities. And he basically framed it as saying, I want to be able to tell my kids that I solved a lot of these problems. I don't want to be explaining to my grandkids why we didn't solve some of those problems. But he said, I know I'm going to get the question. <laughs> like the question's going to be there. So which side of the solution set do you want to be on? I mean, that is exactly what we talk about with, you know, society grows great when people plant trees so their grandchildren can sit in the shade. If you're not thinking about that as the CEO of a company or as someone in government or whatever, like there's people who are focused on today's problems. Like the the adage is like, you know, sales is focused on this month. Marketing is focused on the quarter. The sales leaders are focused on the quarter. Marketing's focused on next year and the CEO is focused on 10 years from now. Well, it's like we need to have that type of long-term thinking across the board. Otherwise, we're going to wake up kind of like we just did 50 years later. And not to like the work of another thing too is like the work of you know, we stand on the shoulders of the people that came before us with the technological advancements, but that yeah. doesn't mean that the buck stops here. It means that we need to continue that legacy of innovation. Gosh, this lightning round, it's not very lightning. <laughs> Favorite one day getaway in the Bay Area? Probably Big Sur or the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Both great. Big Sur, finally, Highway 1 back open. It's great. Thing you are most excited about for the future of cities? 
The thing I'm the most excited about for the future of cities is the elimination of on-street parking. It's just the ugliest thing we do with cities. And there's so much. I, I saw a stat recently that in the United States, we have an area the size of New Jersey covered with parking spaces. And you know, if you drive in a city, and I, I'm probably more attuned to it because we got little kids and our youngest is learning to ride a bike, driving next to a sidewalk, not a problem, right? You can see the people on the sidewalk, you can see what people are doing in the bike lane. Cars, especially with how large American cars have become, you have like an ingress or egress route between every single car. So if you're driving in a city, and it's only a two or three foot gap between you and the parking lane, like it, it gets a little scary sometimes because you just don't know if somebody's gonna run out or bolt out between two cars. So the visibility, the flow, and just the overall aesthetics, when we get to a point where, sure, cars are still gonna need to go into cities, but I just wish that we didn't, we didn't optimize cities around places for people to put their personal car. I couldn't agree more, and I will let you have the last word there because that is just, 100%. The it'll everything will look more beautiful, everything will be better when we are not worried about all of that. Any final thoughts? No, no, definitely enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Thanks for coming by. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thank you to our friends at Katera. The multi-trillion dollar global construction industry is ready for change. Katera's end-to-end team is joining together from different industries to innovate the future of building. Learn how you can join their growing team at katera.com or click the link in our show notes. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.